thank you, Moira, for praying. And um, let me just again acknowledge the fact that it's quite warm in here. So if you're sitting there and you feel like you need to step off a jacket or just make yourself more comfortable in, a, in an appropriate way, feel free to do that. Well, we are back in Galatians, so if you have your Bible, do open with me uh, to Galatians chapter 3. And hopefully that will be nice and easy. You've got those little desks in front of you this morning, and I'll make that nice and simple for you to have your Bible open in front of you. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Galatians 3, 1 to 14, and we addressed the question, how can we know that we are living under God's blessing and favour as opposed to his displeasure? The Apostle Paul there answered that question and argued, we can know we're living under God's blessing, that is under God's favour, by trusting in God's promised Son, that is Jesus Christ. He was arguing against a group known as the Judaizers, who were saying, no Paul, Christ by himself is not sufficient to make you right with God. You need also to obey the Mosaic law, if you're going to be really right with God. The Judaizers were saying you have to obey the law faithfully enough to be counted as righteous. In a sense, you've got to earn that status of being right with God by doing enough religious good deeds. And Paul replied, no. That sort of system brings you under a curse because no one can keep the law adequately. We are made right with God by faith. Faith in God's promised Son. And Paul pointed to Abraham last time we were looking in uh, 3, 1 to 14. And he said in verse 6, Abraham believed in God's promise of blessing in the promised Son. And he was counted righteous. Now you could imagine Paul's opposers, the Judaizers, countering his argument like this. But Paul, in your system, where does the law fit in? Where do works? Where, do, where does obedience to God's commands fit in? Paul, you're jumping from Abraham to Christ. And you're just squeezing out a thousand years of redemptive history under the Mosaic Covenant. You could imagine the Judaizers in Galatia saying, Paul, are you anti-law? Your system of faith alone will lead to chaos. If you're saying you're made righteous by faith in Christ alone, and it's not about works, well then everyone's just going to do whatever they want. So now, in chapter 3, verse 15 down to 24, Paul gives an extended reflection on the purpose of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. The main theme of this section is built around the question Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? And Paul's answer in one statement is simply this. The function of the law was never to give salvation, but to convince men and women of their need of it. That's the main point that Paul is getting at this morning. The law was never given as a way to salvation. The law was given to convince men and women of their need of salvation. He's essentially saying the Old Testament laws, the Mosaic Covenant, and the record of Israel's failure to keep it, this was all given to illuminate how 
amazing the promise of blessing through faith in the promised son is. Like the black velvet backdrop at the jeweler's shop that makes the ring shine. Paul saying the law became a dark backdrop that makes Christ shine. The law was given to help us appreciate Christ. And this is where this section can be really helpful. Remember as Christians, we are not just called in the Bible to trust in Christ. We are called to treasure Christ. And I want to ask you this right at the outset this morning. Do you merely trust Christ or do you treasure Christ? We can fail to treasure Christ because we fail often to appreciate the dark background that we have been saved from. And this extended section on the purpose of the law is given to remind us what we've been saved from, the curse of the law, and it is given to remind us how precious our Saviour is. This section is given to shake us out of our sinful habit of taking the grace that we have in Christ for granted. Because it is so easy to just presume upon grace. So, what we're going to do is essentially just build our message this morning around Paul's question in verse 19. Why then the law? And we're going to see that Paul answers this question in three stages. And remember, all of this to give us the backdrop to help us appreciate Christ. He begins in verses 15 to 18 explaining, first of all, something the law was not given to do. The law was not given to annul or cancel the promise that God made to Abraham and create a new system of salvation. The law was not given to annul the promise that God made to Abraham and create a new system of salvation. Now we could, as I've already said, imagine Paul's opponents at Galatia saying, well yes, Abraham was made right with God through faith in God's promised blessing, through the promised son. Yes, we'll give you that. But 430 years later, God introduced at Sinai the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all the entailments. You can imagine the Judaizers arguing, well that took us into a new era of salvation history, where the way we get right with God is by keeping the law sufficiently. What happened when the law was given is we moved, we progressed through salvation history from the covenant of grace with Abraham into now the covenant of law. They were arguing, potentially, that the coming of the law actually in some way annulled God's promise of righteousness by faith in the promised son and set up a new way of salvation. And Paul responds to this argument and says, no. That is not the right way to understand how God's law relates to the promise of blessing given to Abraham that we are blessed by faith in the promised son. If you look at verse 15, you'll see that Paul engages the illustration of a human last will and testament. That's actually what the man-made covenant language refers to in the original. He's thinking of a, a will whereby you leave your inheritance to your children or to those coming after you in whatever shape it takes. 
And Paul in verse 15 says, think about that. Once a will has been ratified, once a person's died, you don't annul it or change it or mess about with it. In verse 16, Paul says God made a will of sorts, a covenant. He promised an inheritance to Abraham and to his offspring. In chapter 3, verse 8, we learned that this promise was that God would bless Abraham and that in him, that is, in his seed, his offspring, through his descendants, all nations would be blessed. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul spoke of this promised blessing as the blessing of the Spirit. That is, the blessing of salvation, regeneration, and all the benefits that flow from being in the right with God. Now, the language of this promise being made to not just Abraham's offspring in general, but to one offspring, is essentially telling us that the promise was always pointing to Christ. In the true seed, the offspring of Abraham, would all nations be blessed. Faith in the promised son, the promised seed, that is Christ, is how all nations would receive their inheritance of blessing from the Father, from God. And in verse 17, Paul makes his point very clearly. The law which came... 430 years afterwards, that is after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The law's introduction at Sinai after the Exodus does not change the way people are brought into a right relationship with God. From Genesis to Revelation, the only way people are brought into a right relationship with God is by faith in his promised provision of blessing through a promised seed. That is Christ. Paul wants everyone to be clear. In verse 18 he says, if things change by the introduction of the law so that the inheritance, the blessing promised, salvation, if it comes by obeying the law, then God has essentially broken his promise. But that cannot be. God made a promise and God does not break his promises. Paul is arguing that the introduction of the Mosaic law did not introduce a new way to get right with God. It did not cancel that the only way to be made right with God is by faith in his provision of blessing through the promised son. The law did not change that promise. Now let's just apply this for a moment before we move on. At this point, I think we could reflect on this and say, whatever role obedience plays in the Christian life, we must not fall into thinking that our works of obedience make us right with God. We are right with God because of the finished work of the promised seed, the promised son, the promised offspring, who is Christ. Promise precedes law. Always. That truth has never changed. So the law was not given to create a new system of salvation. That's the first thing Paul establishes. But now in verse 19 comes our key question. Well then why was the law given? And Paul answers that question in two stages. Verses 19 to 23 is the first stage of his answer. He says essentially here the law was given to reveal sin. And show us our plight. 
After asking the question, why then the law in verse 19, Paul gives a direct and loaded answer. He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, that is, until Christ should come. Now we have to ask, what does Paul mean by this statement, because of transgressions? Well, in the book of Romans, he elaborates on this brief statement here in Galatians quite considerably. Listen to a few of Paul's statements about why the law was given in Romans chapter 3, first of all, verse 20. He says, through the giving of the law, through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin was. In chapter 7, 13, he says, the law was given to show sin to be sin. When Paul says the law was given because of transgressions, he means the law was given to really expose and exacerbate our great problem of sin. The law provides a way to turn the invisible rebellion in our hearts into the visible transgression of God's revealed will. I'll read that again. The law provides a way to turn the invisible rebellion in our hearts into the visible transgression of God's will. That word transgression means like a line. You're not supposed to cross the line. God's law draws a line. Here is moral righteousness. Now don't break it and step over the line into unrighteousness. The law makes plain that our sin is law-breaking, transgression. It's a stepping off the path of God's revealed will to go our own way. I wonder if you've ever seen one of those signs that says, Wet paint, do not touch. Now what comes to mind the moment you see it? Well, this is what happens in my heart. I'll just give it a wee touch to see where it's at. Or you ever seen a button that says, do not press? What do you instantly want to do? Want to do? And what do you instantly wonder? What would happen if I did press it? Why is the law there that says, don't press it? I'm intrigued. The law exposes the deep problem of our inner rebellion against God's authority over us. Because the moment we're told, do not covet, We recognize that in our hearts are all kinds of covetous desires. And the law actually exposes what's deep within. Now let's walk through the rest of the text and see how Paul explains how this works out in life. But first, a brief, very brief parenthetical comment on the end of verse 19 and verse 20. These are two verses that are very difficult to understand. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I'm not sure I know what that means. And I'm not sure anyone knows what it means, fully. There are many suggestions out there if you read the commentaries as to what this contributes to Paul's argument. I could list maybe five of them and give arguments for you know, them all, but I don't think you'd appreciate that. If you haven't already drifted off in the heat, that would definitely fit you over. So let me just give you what I think is the best explanation for what these verses mean. 
I think at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20, a contrast is being drawn between God's direct action in the promise of blessing through the promised son versus more indirect action through the law. The law was affected at the end of verse 19, we're told, in a complicated way. Through mediators, angels and Moses, it was, in a sense, less direct and therefore inferior. But God's promise of blessing and righteousness through the Son, it was accomplished by God himself. Through the one Son, God himself, in his oneness, secures our salvation completely. So the law is inferior to the promise. God directly said, I'll bless you in the Son, and God himself saw to it that that blessing would be secured. Blessing through the law was marked by mediators, and as we'll see, it did not lead ultimately to life and righteousness. If you want to research and read through all the suggested interpretations of the end of verse 19 and 20, then go for it. Go to the Union Theological Library, get a five or six commentary site, and go for it. But that's the best style I have at understanding just what's going on. But the good thing is that what Paul says there at the end of verse 19 and verse 20, the whole argument does not stand or fall on it. So we don't have to panic too much. Back to the main flow of the argument. Close that parenthetical comment. Verse 21, Paul returns to his explanation of how the law exposes our sin. He's saying here in verse 21 that God's promise of blessing through faith in the promised Son and the law which was given later are not contrary to each other, but they actually complement one another. It's worth taking a moment to recognize how the law of Moses actually complements the promise of blessing through the promised Son given to Abraham. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that the only way to know God's favour and blessing is by trusting in his provision through the promised son. We've established this. The Bible also teaches, however, that the faith that saves taps you into God's power so that a life of walking with God in obedience to him is the result. So faith saves you, but it so unites you to the power of God that your will is transformed so that you want to walk with God and honour his law. You want to be obedient to God, the God who saved you. This was true for Abraham. He was justified, that is made right with God, by grace, through faith, in the promised son. Then you probably remember how in Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to obey a very difficult command. He's commanded to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. In the New Testament, as we were studying in the small groups during the week, for those who were present, James explains that Abraham's obedience demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. Now, why was the law given? Well, as Israel became established as a people and entered their own land, the law outlined more clearly what the life 
of obedience, the life of faith, would look like in the theocracy of Israel. The law was a kind gift in a way from God to say, okay, here's what the obedience of faith looks like under the Mosaic law. I'm not going to leave you in the dark. I'm going to show you what the life of obedience looks like. The law was not contrary to the life of faith. It was complementary to the life of faith. The law was God saying, here is clearly laid out what the obedience of faith, faith involves. Their faith in the Old Testament would be evidenced in the fruit of obedience to the commands of God. So under the Mosaic Law, it was just the same as when you were living uh, under the promise that God had given to Abraham. That promise was not cancelled at any moment. Abraham believed God, and his faith was evidenced through his works of obedience. Under the Mosaic Law, the believers believed God's promise of blessing through the promised seed. And how did they demonstrate their faith? Through living a life of obedience to the law. That would lead to flourishing. Walking in the paths of God's righteousness. So just as today, faith alone in the promised son saves. But the faith that saves never stays alone. It is always accompanied by works of obedience. The law outlines the paths of righteousness that God's people were to walk in by faith. So there is a right way to pursue obedience to the law in the Old Testament, that is by faith. But in Romans 9.32, Paul says, The Israelites reduced the whole thing to a way to earn their salvation. They failed, Paul says, to pursue obedience to the law by faith, but they pursued it as if it was by works. Paul said they tried to turn obedience to the law into a system of salvation by which they could earn God's blessing. They failed to pursue obedience to the law by faith. They forgot that it was faith that made them right with God and that the law was the outworking of how they walked. The, the, the obedience of faith and they actually turned the whole law into a system I guess we keep it well enough and we'll get right with God now you'd think we would never do that and yet how often do you find yourself realising I'm saved by grace through faith but then somehow we seem to relate to God as if it's up to me to do this, do that, do the other and then God will really like me we forget all the time we turn our works of obedience into a system by which we can merit God's favour Paul said, when they turned the law into a system of legalistic righteousness, the law became a prison that condemned them. That's what he says in verse 22. Think of the history of Israel. They received the law at Sinai, and straight away they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And the sentence is hardly even out of their mouth. Before Moses ascends the mountain, and we hear of them making the golden calf and breaking, command number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. Think of Israel in the book of Judges. They get into the land, God gives them everything. They fail to honour God's ways. They get judged, and they get themselves into a mess over and over again. 
Think of the prophets, the priests and the kings who fell into sin recorded in the minor prophets and in the major prophets. Only a small remnant throughout the Old Testament kept walking by faith, waiting for the promised son. The history of Israel living under the Mosaic law demonstrated how much Israel needed the promise of grace. Blessing with God, not dependent on legalistic works, but on grace through a promised son. Why could the law never make anyone alive? Because in our sinfulness, we always break it. Why then the law? To illuminate the problem of sin. To expose the rebellion, the hopelessness, the lostness of man. I wonder if you ever reflected on this. Why did God give a thousand years of history in the Old Testament of Israel living under the Old Testament Mosaic law? Why a thousand years of law covenant? Well, the answer for why is this. To show us the depths of human depravity. To see ourselves in the sorry story of Israel. To see that we, if we try to pursue righteousness by works, we will fail over and over again. The law is given to be a big plumb line. Say, there's God's standard. And when we see the sin in us that makes us fail to keep it, we recognize our position as lawbreakers. That's why the law was given. Because of transgressions. So let's again just apply this before we move on to the, the, the third more brief reason for why the law was given. Let's think of a challenge and a lesson here. We are, in the New Testament, told that we are to learn from Israel's mistakes. We must not turn God's good laws into ways to merit his favour. That was the Galatian problem, remember. They were thinking, we can obey enough of the law, do enough good things, and in the end that will merit God's favour. That's why Paul was going absolutely crazy. He said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's taking you off the track? What's going on? You're going to bring yourself under the curse of the law if you try to find righteousness by the law. But let's be careful that we don't do this. Our righteousness, our right standing, our favour with God, our lives under the blessing of God, they are established solely by faith in the promised Son, by Christ. You can't be any more right with God than you are the moment you're united to Christ. I hope you hear that. The moment you're united to Christ by faith, you are counted righteous under the blessing of God. And you can never become more righteous than you are that moment. Before God. And then the life of sanctification is the life of actually trying to live out God's commands. What we're going to see is called the law of Christ in the New Testament. Our faith is demonstrated in a life of obedience to the law of Christ. So let's not turn even the best works of devotion, going to church, tithing, offering worship, reading your Bible, praying, evangelism. Let's never turn those things into things that we start to think, if I do all of those, then God will really like me. No. God really likes you. He loves you in Christ. And you can't do anything more to get him to like you more. Think of the thief on the cross again. What works could he do while nailed to a cross? 
none. But Christ's death alone made him right with God. Isn't that wonderful? That is absolutely wonderful. Then, um, a lesson. That's a challenge, now a lesson. Only when you have realized your plight under the law can you realize how precious Christ is. So if you, if you were to think through, imagine I was to earn my way to God, and you just hear that, you know, do not commit adultery. And you think of what Jesus said, now even a hint <coughs> of lust in the heart, you've broken it. And you run through all of the law given by God, and you think, if I was to obey that to get right with God, I wouldn't have a hope. And sometimes you have to preach the holiness and righteousness of God in the law to yourself so that you can fully appreciate the treasure that Christ is. John Stott puts it like this. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. So the law was given to show us the seriousness of our problem of sin and to push us towards Christ. And that's where we go now as we turn to verse 24. Another reason the law was given. The law was given to act as a guardian to lead us to Christ. And this will be much more brief. Verse 24, Paul changes his illustration. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul just said that the law became like a prison enslaving Israel. But now he changes his angle of looking at the purpose of the law slightly and he says, I think more positively, in some ways the law was like a guardian that led us all the way to Christ. Now the word for guardian in verse 24 is an interesting Greek word, paedagogos. One, it means one who has responsibility for someone who needs guidance. In the first century world, certain families would enroll one of their servants to act as a kind of mentor, a guide, a disciplinarian for their children. This was the paedagogos. They would lead this guardian would lead the children through their infancy, infancy, mentoring them, bringing them to a place of maturity, and then, in time, they would no longer need the tutoring of childhood. When I was young in Dungannon once, when shopping with my dad, and uh, I wandered off and got lost, I think it was called Wellworths, I don't think it's still there, not Woolworth, but Wellworth. I think it was that. And I remember wandering around and uh, being hopelessly lost. And um, someone saw me crying as a wee boy, not having a clue where I was going. And I remember that person took me by the hand. And they led me through the shopping centre until they found my dad. And I remember that lady taking me by the hand all the way until she put my hand into the hand of my dad. In some ways, Paul's saying the Old Testament law was given to be that kind of guardian, that tutor, that sort of mentor, to ultimately get us to Christ. 
It's like a temporary guardian that was always to lead us to Christ. And I'm not saying much about this because of time, but think of all the ways the Old Testament law serves as a kind of guardian that brings us to Christ. Think of all the types and the shadows that are fulfilled in the Old Testament in Christ. Just the Passover lamb in the Exodus. The lamb that's slaughtered and its blood is put in the doorposts and God will see the blood and he won't come in wrath and judgment and destruction. That's given to point us to Christ. Think of the high priest and all his vestments. How he would wear on his heart and on his shoulders these jewels that had the names of the people of God. and He alone could bear the people right into the presence of the Holy of Holies. And he wore a turban that had this metal plate that said, Holy unto the Lord. The priest could bear the sin and present people as holy, righteous unto the Lord. That's supposed to tell us something about Christ. Think of the Day of Atonement, when the people and the priests would place their hands on a, on a goat and confess all their sins and transfer them. And, and, and not only on one goat, but on two. And then one goat would be slaughtered to pay the penalty for the sins, and the other goat would be taken away out of the camp, so that it would never be seen again, all to speak to us of the saving work of Christ. All the sacrifices, all of the Old Testament types and shadows given to take us by the hand and put us into the hand of Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us this, since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Colossians 2, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So why the law? Was it given to annul the promise of righteousness through faith in the promised Son? Paul says, no, definitely not. But it was given to expose our sin. To illuminate how much we need the promise of blessing through grace in the promised Son. Why then the law? As a guardian to lead us to Christ and help us appreciate Christ in all the multicolored ways we can understand him through the shadows and signs of the Old Testament. So is the law in some way contrary to the promise the Galatians were asking? Paul said, no. The law is so complementary. Because it actually illuminates how much we need the promise. That's a really satisfying argument. And I find that so helpful. So let's just close then with a couple more words of application. In the Christian life today, how are we to think of the law? Well, that's a big question that would take me too long to answer. But as we learn over the coming weeks, we are called now as Christians to obey what is called by Paul a couple of times in the New Testament, the law of Christ. We are to think of all of the Old Testament laws. If you want to go down the moral civil sermon, all of the laws, they, they hit the prism that is Christ. And as white light passes through a prism and then is refracted into a rainbow, all of the Old Testament scriptures, the laws, they get fulfilled in Christ and then they go through and come out the other side and we understand all of the Old Testament law as in Christ. That's what the law of Christ is. So the Sermon on the Mount is a really good illustration of how this works. It's not just don't commit adultery. 
That hits Christ and Christ unpacks it. He says, guys, it's, a written on the, it's, it's the law written on your heart. It's adultery in the heart that's the issue. And so as a Christian, you're saved by grace through faith, but you're called to obey the law of Christ. You're called not to commit adultery. Obedience is real in the Christian life. Just like it was for the Old Testament saints. So we will get into that over the weeks that lie ahead. Because one lovely thing that Paul says over and over again at the end of Galatians is, the only way you can have the power to do that is because of the power of the Spirit. That's what the whole fruit of the Spirit thing is about. Here's the obedience of faith, love, joy, peace, patience, and it will only come as you walk in the Spirit. Not in your own effort. It's going to be really important as we get through to it. So you're saved by grace, through faith in the promised Son, but you're called to live in obedience to the law of Christ. That's why we obey as Christians. Not to merit righteousness, but because we're already righteous in Christ. But then second, and this is where I'll finish. The law was always meant to make us treasure Christ all the more. All of the Old Testament law was given to floodlight humanity's need of a saviour. To help us appreciate that saviour in all the multicoloured ways we are to appreciate him. And I just want to come back to the question I asked right at the beginning. Are you merely trusting in Christ? Or are you treasuring Christ? If you did not have the promise of God's blessing through faith in the promised Son, where would you be? You would be left to try and obey your way to righteousness. And none of us can do that. That becomes a prison that will condemn you to hell. The only way we're free from that is because of the promise. Blessing through the Son. That's the only way we're right with God. So let's not just trust Christ. Let's ask God to help us to treasure what we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this has been quite a dense message this morning and in some ways it feels like the odds are stacked against us with hate and in different circumstances. But I pray that, Father, something of the seed of your word this morning would bury deep into our hearts that we would come through what we've understood, that we would come to appreciate and treasure Christ all the more. He's the end of the law. We're no longer under the Mosaic law the way the Israelites were under it. Because now our Saviour has come. And we do not live under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. And we've been given power from the Spirit to walk in obedience now. The obedience of faith. And so as, the, as James taught us in the New Testament, Lord, we don't just say, I believe, and then don't do any works of obedience. No, we trust in Christ to save us. And then we strive to walk in the obedience of faith, reflecting the characteristics and the value of the kingdom, as has been the way right from the beginning. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond rightly and to enjoy and treasure the blessings we have in your Son alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond by standing to sing Immortal honours rest on Jesus' head. There's a line here about in him there's a treasure all divine. And that's the line that I really wanted us to emphasise this morning. So let's stand together and sing.
bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us his peace. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Please do your, uh, take your seats. There's going to be some refreshments here. The, the, the steward will guide us to wherever that is. And you may well be ready to get out of this warm room. So uh, just take your time that you don't stand up and cater over. Just make your way out next to <laughs>